Hi, fam. Hello, hello. October is flying by. And today is a bit special for me because I'm talking with all my rural ladies and compassionate colleagues from the great state of Montana about treating OCD in smaller cities or rural areas. So get ready for some great conversation because we are having a party, fam, and you're invited. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family, the OCD family that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Okay, so... Today is, it's a special day for me because not only am I getting to introduce you to our amazing Montana crew, but I also had the opportunity to address this content head on today as I trained a group of dedicated staff in my community's behavioral health system. This was such a great moment to share my excitement and my hope for the fam here while bridging the need for awareness and the need for more treatment providers. And it really segues us beautifully into today's chat because I'm meeting with Kyrie Russ, Kelly Smith, and Trisha Cooper, all licensed clinical professional counselors about some tricky situations that can come up for both practitioners and clients when you live in a service area with very, very few providers, limited access to resources, and yet OCD doesn't discriminate, y'all. Mental health disorders could care less about location, location, location. So what can we do when there's less support in our state or our province, wherever we are in our corner of the world? Whether you're in a rolling hill, a cornfield here with me, or even across the globe, this is an important topic to discuss. So thank you for joining us today, and I can't wait for you to hear more. But first, y'all, let me brag, I gotta brag, about today's panel fam, because they are three women that have done so much great work to grow, not only in their own understanding of the treatment of the OCD, but how to help others learn as well. So first up, we have Kyrie Russ, LCPC, who is the owner of Mount Helena's Counseling PLLC. Her practice focuses on providing evidence-based treatments such as cognitive behavioral therapy in a multitude of applications. That includes exposure and response prevention therapy, inference-based CBT, and acceptance and commitment therapy, otherwise known as ACT. Her clinical practice predominantly serves OCD, anxiety, and phobias, as well as body-focused repetitive behaviors and disordered eating. Kyrie is a native Montanan who is passionate about ensuring that Montanans have access to high-quality mental health services. She has expanded her practice into training and consultation, and she founded the Montana CBT Conference, which they just had a few weeks ago, as she noticed gaps in educational opportunities for behavioral health providers in rural areas. 
She's offered trainings throughout the year and state and to national audiences, as well as individual and small group case consultation programs related to treating OCD, eating disorders, and basically anything in the CBT realm. And Kyrie has a blog as well as a training newsletter that she runs through her Substack, and I'm going to be posting that along with all the links and resources for all of our distinguished guests over at OCDFamilyPodcast.com. Just look for this episode's blog and you can get connected to all the resources. And then next up, we have Kelly Smith, LCPC. She's the owner of Big Sky Counseling a private practice dedicated to providing evidence-based care for clients experiencing OCD and related anxiety disorders in the Great Falls, Montana area. She has a background in eating disorders, and that's actually where she got her intro to OCD. Kelly has a passion toward pursuing additional training in a range of different evidence-based techniques. She's trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure and response prevention, which we also refer to as ERP, And again, acceptance and commitment therapy, that's ACT, amongst other evidence-based therapies like inference-based CBT. She also has pursued training as a certified grief education counselor, and she offers professional case consultation for clinicians who may need support in conceptualizing and treating clients with OCD and other anxiety disorders. And last but not least, we are welcoming Trisha Cooper, LCPC, to our family table. Trisha started practicing in 2017, and she is also licensed in Montana as well as Alaska in South Carolina. And we are talking about remote areas. Alaska can be fairly uh, rural and resources can be more scarce in that area as well. But she also relocated to South Carolina where she also can see clients. Trisha was also trained in trauma and addiction treatment and was working in eating disorder treatment until she opened her own private practice in March of 2021. Trisha has since focused on treating OCD and other anxiety disorders, and she provides CBT-based interventions such as ERP and ICBT. So we have a background of eating disorder treatment as well as trauma, addiction, and OCD from our panelists today. So thank you to our amazing panel of strong and knowledgeable practitioners. And hey, let's dive in, fam, because there's lots to discuss. Welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast. And today... I am so excited, y'all, because I am meeting with a dynamic group of rural ladies. We all work in little isolated portion of the country. All of us happen to be U.S.-based, but we are banding together today to talk about the strengths, the challenges that come with really offering hope and providing resources and access to OCD and OCD-related disorder sufferers. And so welcome, ladies. I know we have a big group on today. And so I'll just say hi. And maybe if you want to just introduce yourself, do a little shout out of where you're working. would love to just introduce you to the fam here. I'm Kelly Smith, and I am in Great Falls, Montana. I'm Kyrie Russ, and I work in Helena, Montana, which is the state capital. Oh. And don't be confused, just because it's the capital does not mean it's a major metropolis. Okay, Helena. And I'm Trisha Cooper, and I also have a private practice base in Great Falls, but I'm currently actually located in South Carolina. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. Much like me, I'm licensed in California. 
but also living in Indiana and seeing clients in Indiana as well. Well, welcome everyone. So part of the story, I love talking about the story behind OCD, right? And the story of how I got into treating OCD. But part of the story that's bringing us together today too, is we're going to be talking about what it's like to be a practitioner in a service area where you may be the only person practicing within a 10 to 100 to 200 mile radius even sometimes. And I think, Kelly, you and Trisha both have private practices in the same area, but even having two people in town, that is not a fortress of people being able to field all the clients that are dealing with OCD. And most of the clients don't even know they're dealing with OCD, right? So part of the reason we're coming together today is to really talk about some of the strengths, some of the challenges that come with being in a more rural or small town area, even if you're in the capital where it's not heavily populated and the resources are still few and far between. And so we're going to be talking about that today, but I would love to go around first and ask, have you guys been treating OCD your whole career? And if not, what brought you into the world of understanding and going, oh my gosh, I need to learn more about this with OCD? Can I start with you, Kyrie? Sure. So I've been treating OCD for about 10 years. Probably in the last oh, seven years, I've become more and more specialized in that area. So now the majority of my caseload has OCD or some sort of anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. So I started down that road when I was working in a college counseling center where I did my graduate clinical internship. And I had a young woman come into my office with a look of fear in her eyes that I had never seen before. It was really, really pronounced, sort of a deer in the headlight sort of look. And she was able to tell me that she had OCD. She had been prior diagnosed with that and had worked with a therapist prior to coming out of state to college. So she came into Montana. She never did tell me what kind of OCD she was dealing with, what her OCD theme was. She was just so scared to disclose it. And she had all sorts of questions for me about my training working with OCD. She shared that her therapist from her home state had said to basically like, make sure that whoever you see has this training, this training, this training. Maybe they're a member of the International OCD Foundation. It, it sounded like that person had really been protective of yeah. her and gave a treatment. And of course, at the time, I had none of those credential. <laughs> right. Kind of thought I knew what I was doing because I did know a little bit about OCD and the egodystonic nature of OCD, but certainly didn't have any specific training. And she came for one session and she never came back because she was too scared to do that work with me. And that really lit a fire under me that I wasn't ever going to tell somebody again that I didn't have that training. And I just grew a really big heart for that work. And from that point on, I started to get trained up. Wow, that's powerful. And also, I feel like it's so rare that somebody comes in informed enough that they know they even have the diagnosis, let alone like these evidence-based practices. So whether it's ERP, exposure and response prevention, or ICBT, which is inference-based CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, ACT, you will hear, I really think of ACT more as an augmentation. ACT, folks, I guess come at me, but... I'd, I'd never really do that outside of augmenting ERP or ICBT with that. But I'm glad that she was armed with that kind of information. 
You also see, though, how when you have that information, you go seeking out resources. I bet she tried to find a lot of different therapists that were like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I know how to do my job. I can help. And so that's a really interesting point. Okay, Kelly, can you tell us a little bit about your story? Have you been treating OCD your whole career? No, I I have not. I interned and I went back to school midlife. I was a stay-at-home mom for a long time and went back to school later. And I interned at a place that specialized in treating eating disorders. And when I went into private practice, I had a few clients follow me into private practice. And one of those clients who was pretty well recovered from her eating disorder at the onset of the pandemic really like contamination OCD just showed up like so strong. And I didn't know anything about treating OCD. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks to like the media portrayals, like thanks to contamination OCD being kind of the most familiar kind, I could at least go, okay, I think I know what's going on here and I don't know how to treat it. And I, of course, really cared about this client. And I just thought, well, I need to do like the fastest deep dive I can into figuring out how to help this client because now she's she's doing well in this one aspect, but now this contamination OCD has showed up and it's really closing in on her life. So I just started seeking out trainings wherever I could find them. And one of those trainings was with Kyrie. She's a front runner in Montana for bringing evidence-based training, CBT training, ERP training, and making it accessible to us. Go so, Kyrie. Yeah, so that is how I even got connected to Kyrie. And I sat in that training. Trisha, were you with me in that training? I'm trying to remember. We yeah, both- I was. Yeah, I was like a fly on the wall. Sorry, Kyrie. Okay. Yes, Sorry, Kyrie. We double dipped on your training, full confession. <laughs> we sat in that training together. And as she was going through ERP and the model and the, the OC cycle and everything, it really dawned on me pretty like significantly that my daughter has OCD and she had been struggling with an anxiety disorder for a while. I couldn't quite get a handle on it. There was a lot of panic symptoms involved and I'm like, well, I could not figure out what was going on. But as soon as I sat in that training, it was really, really clear. Mm -hmm. So then I was like, oh, now I need to know everything there is to know about OCD like right now. So that just began my deep dive into learning everything I could about OCD. I was all in right from that moment. Yeah. Into the conferences, doing the trainings. And and then it turned out I had another person on my caseload with OCD that I didn't realize because it was a different subset. And I was like, oh, okay, we're doing this. So yeah, isn't it interesting? It, It matters a whole lot. And I think a lot of people in our profession thankfully feel a due diligence and an ethical call to know more but then if you find out man this has been going on in my family it's like we talk about in erp sometimes we're gonna tip our toe in the water we're not gonna plunge in and you're like nope i'm i'm deep sea diving now yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah yeah really interesting okay and then for you trish so it sounds like you were a fly on the wall in the training that's all right. I was. Yeah. Yeah. So my training began, I was in addiction and trauma treatment to start with until I moved to Montana, where I actually met Kelly at the same place where we were treating eating disorders and kind of went to private practice around the same time. And I had a pretty complex client get on my caseload. And it's the same thing. I just didn't feel equipped enough to really understand like how to treat OCD. And I knew that there was a training coming up and I I was listening in. I'm like, wow, like this is definitely like something I will learn more about. So I just just kind of dove all in like Kelly did too and took 
all the trainings I could, read all the books. I scheduled consultations with Kyrie, which I still do on a regular basis, just so I can learn and learn and learn. So love yeah. that. Well, and you know what's interesting is so I was talking with with Patrick McGrath, who did a lot of work around substance use disorder, and I've talked with Dr. Jenna Delossi here on the podcast about eating disorder and really how the treatment for OCD has some good outcomes tracked in the data for its efficacy using it with eating disorder and substance use. But what something that really struck me when I was learning more about the eating disorder part was that, and I've found this because I've had clients that have, I feel like I've had a big surge of eating disorder clients get referred. And that and misophonia, I feel like, are the ones that I, I get random calls about like every few weeks at least. But what's interesting is it's harder to really develop a game plan strategy with the eating disorder clients. Family-based treatment is the gold standard, but it's kind of very broad. And, and at least from my attempt to dive in and help some clients, it's not really manualized the way something like ERP is. And yet ERP can be really helpful. There is good research outcomes for ERP being used with eating disorders. And so I'm just curious for you two, Kelly and Trish, who were working with some eating disorder and substance use, was there a particular model or evidence-based treatment that you guys were offering to those clients? Because sometimes it is ERP, but less commonly it's ERP. And I'm just kind of curious in terms of which which practices you were using to help treat those clients? So the clinic that Trisha and I were at was very much ACT-based. Okay. That was sort of their primary modality. That's what we were trained in. And a lot of values were, there was some wraparound care as far as there were dietitians and meal support and exposures to fear foods and some of those things going on. But ACT was the primary modality there. I love that because I'm like, ACT people, come at me. And you're like, we're ACT people. <laughs> well, <laughs> I love ACT, but I also view it as as sort of a great add-on when working with, with OCD. Yeah, I think of it as a frame, a lens, a, a kind of a worldview. And I should hope, really, in most treatment, we're trying to do value-driven treatment that is going to help our clients get closer to the life and the functioning that they want to have. And that's sometimes going to be different than what I could say might be best for them. But it's not about me. It's about them and what they need and how they can reunite in engaging in their relationships and their work or school or their faith or whatever it is in a meaningful way. And so ACT isn't bad by any means, acceptance and commitment therapy, but I think of it more as like an all-inclusive umbrella of like, I should hope everything we're doing is really value-driven in that matter of speaking. So you guys all came into OCD later on. Was anybody a psychodynamic therapist here in a previous therapeutic life? I'm raising my hand. They're all like, yeah. we wouldn't touch that. No. It's like a I dirty was like, I was like, nope. I was I, not. When I was in grad school when we had to write that paper that I'm sure we all had to write. What's your primary theoretical orientation? <laughs> I knew immediately I was going to be a CBT therapist. Yeah. And strayed much from that. Although I do have act training and I do use that as sort of a nice vehicle to get people to do the harder exposures that are values driven. I really, at the end of the day, have always identified as a CBT therapist. Yeah. And I think CBT gets a little bit 
stereotyped, but I find it to be so rich with so many different applications that, I mean, honestly, the research shows are, it's usually going to be at the, the top of the heap of effectiveness. Yeah, I mean, it's because of the research outcomes. Most insurance companies, at least here in the States, I can't speak to, I would guess the NHS is this way in, in the UK as well, but it's going to be very outcome driven. And CBT is usually the best fit because it's measurable. It's looking at how do we advance this person towards what we would say as non-disordered living or non-functional impairment. And the outcome in the research is really rich for CBT. I never had anything against CBT, but I was definitely more of a psychodynamic therapist for like 20 years. And so it's still funny to me because I will talk to folks all the time in this setting or at conferences and they're like, well, you know, us behaviorists. And I'm like, I, I can't like that just sounds still so funny to me. But I think no matter what division of therapy or modality we're using, behavior is something we're addressing and something we learn coming further into OCD research and understanding is how therapy sometimes can function in a compulsory way. If we're talking about reinforcing that negative behavior cycle, if we're not careful. So it's it's part of the reason why I'm sure that young woman's therapist who came to see you when she was in college, Kyrie, was like, hey, not just any brand of therapy is going to work here. And was protective. I feel protective over clients, too. If I have them on a wait list, I'm like, here, try no CD, try these different referrals. But also, like, no matter what you do, look for these buzzwords. Look for ERP. Look for ICBT. If they don't know what that is, then go run the other way. <laughs> run the other way. So I've definitely done that as well because I feel protective of it as well. But once I got into learning about OCD, I realized I had been treating OCD clients my entire career, and I just didn't realize it was OCD. And so let's talk about that a little bit, because all of us have that in common. I got a client that I, I infamously joke here at the podcast, the fam knows, they were dealing with OCD to the extent that even I couldn't miss it, that's the joke, because I had missed so many cases of it before I recognized what it was. And so let's talk about that, because it's not like we live across from Rogers Behavioral Health or Baylor University that's doing amazing research or down in Florida. But there are some schools that are more notorious for doing some of the OCD research, particularly here in the States. But we didn't live near those places. And so can we talk a little bit, Kyrie, when you said you were like, I need to learn more so that I don't turn anybody else away for this reason of just not knowing, how did you go about learning more about OCD? And did you find those trainings to be easily accessible or difficult to find? <laughs> yeah, similar to Trisha and Kelly, I started by just reading as much as I could. And there is a lot out there. There's a lot of manuals and books and blogs. There is a lot of information out there on evidence-based treatment of OCD if you go looking for it. I got a wait list for the BTTI with IOCDF. And as we all know, sometimes there's a wait. I, I somehow got in relatively quickly once wow. I got this. I think it was like I got in right before it got maybe more and more popular. So I attended that. 
But honestly, I think the way that I've learned most is through my own individual consultation with Mike Hetty, who you've had on the show. I think just talking about cases taught me the most. And also, you know, working with clients, you learn a lot. There's always something new that they teach you. So I guess I, it was a bit eclectic, the things I put together to get trained. And I would say I found it accessible in some ways, but it's not very accessible to go have in-person training, which I know I learned best that way, Mm -hmm. which is what kind of inspired me to bring some training to Montana as an in-person opportunity, because I think many of us, we get burnt out on the virtual even though the virtual is great because it's so accessible. Right, right. Those are really good points because it can be challenging. And when we're talking about going to an in-person training, aside from like you planning and putting together a training in Montana, typically what you're describing is flying to a big city on the East Coast or the West Coast, occasionally somewhere in Chicago. But generally, you're going to have to fly somewhere that's going to be a hotel cost, that's going to be CEU cost, and that's if you can get in. When uh, Kyrie is talking about the BTTI, that's Behavioral Therapy Training Institute, y'all, this is a training that is supposed to be kind of the creme de la creme of training at least ERP-based therapists here in the United States. And the waiting list is so long to try and get in. And so people can be like, oh, my gosh, I want to be BTTI trained. Maybe they already know some about OCD, but they recognize like this is a status that I want to be able to have, that I'm certified as a BTTI trained therapist. You could be on a wait list for years. Conversely, you could be in an area where you're like, I don't know crap about it. I'm trying. I'm reading Freedom from OCD by John Grayson. I'm looking at these Abramowitz books, but I really need like somebody to explain ERP because I get it, but I don't. ERP is nuanced and tricky. It's kind of I my joke is it's kind of like a jam recipe if you've ever made jelly or jam, where it's like the ingredients are here, but if you don't do it in the correct way, you're not going to end up with jelly or jam. You're going to get some weird concoction that didn't set and it's a waste, right? And so ERP kind of feels like that because it's one thing to set up an exposure hierarchy. That is pretty straightforward. But getting the response prevention, which is so key to OCD treatment and is probably the trickiest part about doing ERP is you as the therapist understanding, client understanding, client's family and support loved ones, you fam understanding, it's it's tricky. Response prevention is tricky. And so kudos to you for bringing trainings to Montana. But also, yes, it is hard. And, and virtual trainings for especially for a significant chunk of the COVID period were all there were. How about for you, Trish, what was it like for you to get training? I know you were like queuing in and going, oh, okay, this is interesting. But after hearing a little bit of Kyrie's training, reading and learning more, what was your strategy for getting to understand OCD better? Oh, absolutely. Consultation. I agree with Kyrie that actually meeting with someone and talking through specific cases and getting different perspectives and way to approach it. That's where I learned a lot. And then during those consultations, like Kai would often give me like, hey, like go read this or read on this, which is where she introduced me to ICBT. And that has just been a, like a whole nother area of just like digging in and learning. Yeah. Yeah. It's very different than ERP. So it it's a mind bend if you have been like fully zoomed into ERP. It's a really, it's funny because now I feel like I speak both languages more or less. And it's 
funny to me that it didn't make sense. Like if I go back and listen to, say, those podcasts that I recorded with Mike, where I first was learning more in depth about ICBT. I'm like, that's so funny to me. It's so common sense to me now. But it was something like I could not wrap my head around understanding back then. So you're right. First of all, it's hard to get access to the training. Secondly, we have basically one really well-endorsed training approach for OCD here in the U.S. Now we have ICBT really emerging more in a grassroots way, not because people are just talking about it and it makes sense, but because it also is an evidence-based practice that has about 30 years of research about it. And we're not just kind of floating out ideas that are just conveniently helpful in our observation, right? This has research behind it. But it hasn't been as common or popular. And so trying to access the different trainings can sometimes be challenging, particularly in an in-person way. Because most ICBT folks, that community is really giving with resources and trainings and amazing, but it's almost all virtual. And part of that is because there's been some gatekeeping around what kind of modalities are taught officially through the powers that be, which might be, I might be walking a tightrope here, guys, on, on that kind of comment. Oh, well, I said it. We're the family and we say things. But yeah, so there's that. Okay, so Kelly, how about for you? Was it also more the same of just getting in rich consultation? Or how did you come about to really be able to access the training you needed to be able to understand OCD better? I think, again, just like Kyrie and Trisha have said, it's a lot of self-led learning. So seeking consultation from Kyrie, Mike Hetty, through Shepard Pratt, through IOCDF, and then looking for like structured learning. I did Kim Quinlan's course, just lots of different places because I think I'm still on the wait list for BTTI. It's been years. I think Trisha and I, I think we signed it together, right? And we've heard nothing. I mean, at this point, I feel pretty trained, but... You could probably lead the training. Yeah, I I might decline if they throw out an offer, but... You're like, for $1,000, would I do that? I mean... Yeah, I I think we're still, you know, two and a half years in and we're still hanging tight on the BTTI waitlist. But yeah, I think the challenging aspect is when you are in a very rural setting Mm -hmm. and you have to kind of find those self-led learning opportunities, trying to suss out, like is this a quality training? Is this going to give me good structure and evidence-based approaches is really challenging because it's not like here in Montana, it's like, oh, hey, everybody, there's this awesome OCD training available. Now Kyrie is turning the tide there for which we are very grateful. But it is sort of this isolating piece of I'm just kind of sitting in my office trying to figure out, is this a good training? Is this going to help me help my clients? Is this worth investing in? Yeah, I was enough to share an office suite with Trisha. We were in the same office suite, so we could pop in back and forth. And because we both sort of emerged into the world of OCD together, I had someone to like bounce off. Like, does this seem like a good training? Should we do this one? But it is very hard to to know, you know, when there's nothing widely known, widely advertised and widely recognized as a solid training. You're kind of just out in the wild, wild west. Yeah. Trying to figure it out. Yeah. That is a really good way of describing it because people will start finding you, whether you've advertised it or not. They will hear through the grapevine that you are doing OCD. And then if you end up on like a service directory, whether it's through ADAA or IOCDF or ICBT, people will start finding you more and more as well. And it's like, 
they're coming to you. You're my only hope. And you're like, I'm learning. I'm trying to figure this out. And so it can feel really difficult. What's interesting for me is when I first got my first client that I was aware of that had OCD, I was like, this is clearly OCD. And so I started looking up and I'm like, I have no idea how to treat this. I need to refer out this client. And so I went back to the client and I said, you know what? I recognize that you have OCD and I want to let you know that so that you can advocate too. But I don't know how to treat this. And I'm getting from all the initial research I did, and I did a lot of it to try and kind of figure out what resources I could link her to. I said, I'm pretty sure you need to do exposure and response prevention therapy. And here you can look on the IOCDF directory and find a service provider, hopefully, that can work with you. And this was at the very, very beginning of the pandemic. And they were like, you know what? Everybody has a waiting list a mile long. I don't care if you know how to do it or not. You're my only hope, right? You know, so we, we're going to just it, learn it. Let's learn it. And so we did. And I said, OK, I will do this on one condition, though. If we're learning it and I just it's not clicking with me, I feel strongly that I'm going to need to refer you to another provider. And fortunately, because I mean, this is fortunately and unfortunately with the pandemic going on, everything switched to virtual. So it was that coming summer was going to be the virtual conference instead of the in-person conference, et cetera. And so I was like, okay, but I feel like I can't just tread water with you while I'm doing this. And I'm reading books and I'm having the parents are completely flooded. And so I'm like, you could read this book. They're, everybody's just surviving at that point in the shutdown and everything. And so I remember looking up the BTTI and there was going to be one in Indianapolis. And so I emailed them and I said, are you still doing this training? And they're like, we're really going to try. And the COVID, like, this was like so early into COVID that like everybody was terrified and didn't know what to do. So they were going to like have us like across the room from each other and only six people could be there and, blah, you know, things like that. But ultimately, they, because everybody had dropped out, they had had this waiting list, they said, you can come. I ultimately didn't feel comfortable enough to travel down. I have parents that were going to be more vulnerable and at risk who I wasn't even seeing. I was like, I can't do this. I can't go to the in-person training. And so what ended up happening, and I don't know, I don't know if it's through that. I don't even know how they got my name, but I got contacted by OCD Midwest, along with a group of other clinicians and practitioners, was offered to apply for a sponsored position to be trained BTTI the following year. And that's what I ended up getting. I ended up getting one of those slots. And so if it weren't for OCD Midwest, an affiliate of the International OCD Foundation, having a special deal with IOCDF, where they were doing a training specifically, actually since then, I think they have done entirely a training on just Midwest practitioners because of that. But there were three of us there that they were like, wow, this service area has like six people. So we, we're paying for three people to go get trained. And in return, they can share about this and do a walk and, and all those sorts of things. And so I'm grateful 
But also OCD Midwest, and I don't know if you guys have a branch within Montana or just even that kind of general region, but as an affiliate, it's like without that in, I'd still be on a waiting list too. And so it's, it's convenient. And I don't, I don't know. At the time, Patrick McGrath was the president. And then he transitioned to Gabrielle Fagella, who's amazing. She came on last year. I talked about hoarding. And they're all great people, but they have connections within the greater kind of training infrastructure. So that was beneficial to help get the Midwest some slots. But it's really, really hard when you're out kind of in this wild, wild west on your own and things aren't accessible. And now clients are coming in droves for either telehealth or in person going, I need some kind of hope. And you're like, well, me too. I do. I, I, I need to. I need some support in this. So we do have a lot of colleagues in the field that do amazing consultation. But also most of it's going to be virtual because that's just people are all over the world, really, at this point. And so it is important to be able to get that access, but it can be really, really hard. Can you tell me, Kyrie, in terms of helping bring some more of that evidence-based focus and impact to Montana? What was that process like for you building that up? Because that must have been a lot of work and a lot of moving parts. Yeah. So like you, the pandemic, it, it sort of shaped the next phase of my career as I was sitting at home doing virtual therapy and trying to school my children <laughs> at the time, as many of us were doing. Yes. I had this brainchild of like, I need another project to do on top of this. Um, and that brainchild was like, I really wanted to bring training to Montana. And at the time I started with virtual training because that's all we really could do. Yeah. But once we got to the part of the pandemic where people were starting to emerge out into public again, I started something that I called the Montana CBT Conference. And now we're going to be on year three and it's actually next week from the time of this recording. And this year, one of the days is going to be OCD training. And both Trisha and Kelly are helping me with that. Nice. We've um, risen to the level of what I consider to be OCD experts and so pleased to have them as part of a panel discussion and some grand rounds presentations we're doing on the evidence-based treatment of OCD. So 55 therapists in Montana are going to get trained next week. And that's something I plan to continue for the rest of my career. My CBT conference isn't always on OCD. I have multiple topics every year to kind of appeal to, to different audiences because not everybody needs to become an OCD therapist. Right. But that's something I got going in the pandemic. And I would add, Kelly and Trisha also did something really important in that they started a Facebook, a closed Facebook group for OCD clinicians in Montana. And that's made a huge impact. Yeah. We now have a referral list of nice. people to refer to, which has helped me tremendously. So maybe they could speak to, to that brainchild. Yeah, I would love to hear about that because we have a similar thing going in Indiana and it's huge. We But we still have like crazy wait lists. But I would love to hear how that came about. I'll let you go, Kelly. Kelly's oh. like, Kelly's <laughs> um, nonverbals were like, I'll let you. And you're like, I'll let oh, her. I'm happy to jump in, but I just <laughs> wanted to give Trisha a nod too because really this was really collaborative. And like I said, Trisha and I were so lucky to be in the same office suite and at the same time dive into the world of treating OCD. Like the timing was just pretty incredible. And so because we were together and and in person, it kind of lit a fire under both of us. And 
you're right that as soon as somebody finds out that you know how to treat OCD, the referrals just show up. Yeah. And before you know it, it's like, oh, I I either have to cross my own boundaries and add more clients to my schedule or I have to maintain this wait list, which feels a little yucky, but is necessary. Or we got to figure out who else in Montana has room or is willing to train or can treat people. Yes, that. <laughs> so, you know, we were just, Trisha and I were just here in Great Falls kind of figuring out how do we connect to these people. We had connected to Kyrie. But beyond that, we really didn't know anyone who yeah. treated OCD. So we kind of just started kicking around this idea of starting this Facebook page, Montana OCD Providers. Let's just see if we can at least get connected in one virtual space. And so we just put this page together. We advertised on the other mental health pages in Montana. There are several, maybe five for like different regions of Montana that are more general. And just said like, this is sort of what we're looking at. Do you specialize in treating OCD? Do you have a portion of your caseload that are clients with OCD? Are you willing to learn about treating OCD? Are you actively taking clients who have OCD, at least for part of your caseload? Please come join us. Like, we need a community. And we've reworked that page, but ultimately it's come together and it's been really nice to have this, this space where we kind of know around the state who can provide evidence-based treatment for OCD. And we put together a provider's list. Now, I am not tech savvy at all. So I think actually, Kyrie, that felt to you to make it into a living Google document that people could click on the link and the update would be there. But that's also really nice when we see on the broader pages who can work with somebody who has OCD. We can offer, hey, would you like us to send you the provider list? Yeah. And we can post on our own page, hey, who has availability for this client, this age, this insurance, and really get those referrals out a little bit faster. And I think that referral list has also gone to some psychiatric providers, some medical providers, and it's just been kind of a way to connect us all virtually and get that treatment out there faster. Are you guys also a part of like a broader Montana mental health provider group as well? Because I know here, like in, in Northeast Indiana, we have a Northeast mental health provider group and they're definitely not mostly i mean it's me right so it's pretty much not ocd right but i will often go and float things out especially i don't hit them with every ocd training that's coming but especially ones like we have a forested areas as you guys do in montana as well and ticks have been bad and floating out the you know, let's learn about Lyme's disease and pans and pandas and all of that, which can really overlap with our OCD community. Or there is a group talk. The virtual conference for faith and OCD is pretty inexpensive, even as a provider, particularly because we're not used to like a $50 training. But I think it's like just an attendee. The the It's a one-day conference, at least it has been in the past. and maybe 10 bucks or whatever to be able to go. And I know that Scroop is a huge issue here. I live in the Bible Belt. There's a lot of scrupulosity going on and not just religious Scroop, moral Scroop as well. And so going, hey, have you ever had a client that's really afraid that maybe they're going to hell no matter what they do or they've committed dumb parmal sin or whatever the thing is, that they're going to go to jail because they're not a moral person, even though they live the most upstanding life, like maybe you should check out this training. It's a pretty cheap way to get CEUs. And so I will float that out to the broader community as well. But yeah, you're right. Not everybody needs to be an OCD therapist, but OCD therapists, I think just good 
practice anyway is to be in consultation and have some kind of professional formation group at the very least. Because it's not like we get licensed and suddenly don't need to discuss cases anymore. It's just on our license. And often when people are unlicensed, then they're a part of a group or an individual supervision where they're getting more of that direct feedback. And so you have to seek that out as a professional once you're licensed. If you're not at an agency or a community mental health center that's already going to have that system in place But then even still, often your licensed practitioners don't need the hours the way the unlicensed people need the hours. And so I think it is so, so important to be able to find your community and be able to have a place where you can bounce off these ideas. I even wonder within that Facebook group you guys have, like, I wonder what all it takes to become an affiliate. Like, could that group blossom into a Montana affiliate? Where then you can go, like none of us have been BTJ trained, but except Kyrie's been, she got like magically in. But the rest of (laughs) y'all are still on a wait list yet training everybody else in the state. And I'm sure you are more than qualified at this point. BTTI is essentially just a very comprehensive, dense training of ERP, which you have been learning and consulting and, and doing all the things about for the last, you know, however long you've been treating OCD. And so that might even be something I'm sure you guys are very busy, but like somebody maybe that has a little more free time who wants to look into an affiliate application of how we can get certified. That might be an idea, but yeah, it takes time and it really speaks to without that referral source, we were talking about the wait list. There is that pressure that can come about of like, if I'm the only one that has this knowledge and there are so many people suffering. And ultimately, we get into this helping profession because we want to help. It feels like it's a big tug on our heartstrings, on our boundaries to go, oh, my gosh, like, but I, I can't just send them to anybody. So what do I do? What do I do? And that would be a great point, I think, for us to discuss that rub, because often we are going to have wait lists, especially if we're in a specialty. And you know what? If, if my kid needed to go to the dermatologist, which is, is going to be a specialist for him, he might have to wait three months. And I don't sit, I, I might gripe about that and be like, that's annoying that it can't be sooner, but it's not like the end of the world. Three months? I don't even like a client to have to wait three weeks. That feels uncomfortable. But the reality is sometimes people are on a wait list, just like you guys are for the BTTI for years. Sometimes. So let's talk about waitlist. What has that been like for you guys? Because now you have this referral source where you can use the group to check and, and make sure people have insurance, which is huge. We're not sending somebody and they're like, oh, they don't even take cross or whatever. But what has that been like for you ladies? I would say that it's been, my experience with the waitlist has been somewhat overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I just told somebody on the phone yesterday that if they want to be on my waitlist, it's probably going to be like into January or February, which is fairly unacceptable. So generally at this point, now that I have some people to refer to, I will usually see if somebody from our provider list is available before I will put them on a wait list because there's no there's no need to wait to see me in most cases unless they really are in my area and they want to have in-person therapy. And there are, there are a few other people in my town that do OCD treatment. So I will either seek that for in-person treatment or I will seek our provider list Often Kelly and Trisha, yeah, I will text you like, do you have an opening? Yeah, let's. I mean, I I feel tremendous relief in having this group 
that Kelly and Trisha have put together, it's helped me be able to maintain some boundaries rather than continue to add yeah. 50 slots. In general, in Montana, outside of just specific OCD work, mm-hmm. there's a massive problem. We had the second highest suicide rate in the country behind Wyoming and Alaska. Uh, so, Trisha, you've nailed it. You're licensed in two of the states with the <laughs> highest suicide rate. I think just in general, we all take those calls from a desperate parent whose child maybe just got out of a hospitalization. They need therapy and they need it that week. And yeah. unfortunately, you can call around the community and you're not going to find it right. that week. So I would say Montana and other rural areas have a big problem, not even just specific to needing a specialist, but even a general mental health treatment is tough. Yeah. Yeah. That linkage, which is, uh, I mean, yeah. That's really tough because like ethically really need that linkage to be set up and depending on a lot of different variables that factor into that. Yeah, it can be hard. But at the same time, like you're saying, like you can't pull someone out of thin air. If we could, if we could, we'd be fine. This wouldn't even be a conversation, but we can't. Right. I do have a question, though. You said, Kyrie, it's not acceptable that it's a wait list till January. I get what you're saying, but I'm also, not to say devil's advocate, but also it's not the problem you created in that system, right? So it's like, yeah, that's a frustrating thing, but like the one person, you, or this, even this group, even the network can't fix that all on their own. And so while it feels very frustrating, we want to fight the injustice of it, It's also like just the reality of it. It's not fair, but it's the reality, right? Yeah, I think the hard part that Kyrie was speaking to is just that that overwhelm. And it does feel at times even unethical to hold a wait list where, sorry, we're not going to be able to provide services for four months plus. And knowing what we know about OCD, we know what's happening in those four months. Mm -hmm. So while we didn't create the, the system we still feel very bound to creating change, accepting what is and holding hope for change. And part of the way that Kyrie's doing that is bringing the training. Part of the way that Trisha and Kyrie and I are all doing that is centering our forces on the Montana OCD provider page and trying to get those referrals out much faster because it does feel really difficult to sit on a wait list like that knowing what's happening in the interim. It does. Yeah. yeah. And what I would say, too, is we know, and this is a stat from NoCD, and I think IOCDF, and it's just a well-known stat in our field, that a person with OCD tends to live 14 to 17 years from the date of onset of symptoms until they are able to access a provider, right? Which is astronomical amount of time. Sometimes that's almost the entire life of a person. I, in the process of going through the BTTI, realized, shit, I have OCD. I've always had anxiety. I've had all the tools to manage it in a reinforcing way. Uh, But when I'm going through the training and even, like, excusing myself to run to the bathroom because I had bladder urgency, like, you wouldn't believe, and not even connecting that this was, like, an OCD thing about, like, what if if I'm in a group of professionals and I go to the bathroom like it's silly to me to think now but the thought was really debilitating at the time and as I'm sitting in a specialist training for OCD going wait a minute this sounds really familiar so I can tell you that now in hindsight 
thinking about it, I've had OCD for over 30 years and didn't even recognize it as a specialist treating OCD. I just didn't see underneath kind of that initial layer of, oh, yeah, I have anxiety. I've learned how to cope with it, whatever. I got skills. And so it's really interesting. And I totally get it. I'm not negating that. It, it, it feels very important. But at the same time, I also feel like something for me here in Indiana, I, I've gotten a lot of pressure to take more clients, to open up more hours. Because I am the only person for like 100 miles. I just had a client say to me last week, like, how is this seems like such a common problem. Like the more I learn about OCD and the more I learn about it, like how it's presenting and how it's affected me, I can point to nine people or so in my life that have this too. And yet you're like the only person for 100 miles that can even know what you're talking about, let alone treat it. And you don't know how good the therapist is or isn't. You just know they happen to know what OCD is, right? And most people come in and don't realize that's what they're dealing with. And so I said, yeah, it is, it is interesting. And you feel that pressure. But I also feel the pressure of being the only wife to my husband. Better be. Better be. No, I am. The only <laughs> wife to my husband. I'm the only mom to my kids. And so it's like, how do I also, we use this analogy a lot in the OCD field, probably just in mental health at large, like how do I keep my own oxygen mask on so that I can be helpful to others? Because I feel that from the ethical side too, of like, if I overextend myself and burn out, then there's going to be zero providers within 100 miles, zero. And that doesn't do anything to help me, to help the client, to help the community. So part of how that's manifested for me, similar to how you've been building that network, I've been building relationships. I have a couple, I don't know who they are. I get pediatrician and doctor referrals, and I'm not sure who they are. I have suspicions of who's sending their people to me. But you get on the trusted side of some other professionals in your community, and they're like, you, I trust you, and you'll be able to, if you don't know, then you'll be able to link them to somebody that does. But I have been partnering and training at our local behavioral health hospital in outpatient, but they do intensive outpatient as well as partial and full hospitalization because I, there have been horror stories coming out of there. And it sounds like it's very similar with lack of resources to link people to coming out of the hospital, dealing with very egodystonic, very disturbing themes of OCD that have been coded as psychosis, mania. Uh, suicidality, homicidality. And it's a real problem because <laughs> even in talking to somebody there, I was just making small chat with one of the staff over there, one of the last times I was over there. And they were like, yeah, I don't think I've ever met anyone with OCD. That's interesting. And I was like, I have like six clients that I can think of just in this second that have come out of here. You've certainly seen it. But they don't know what they don't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. I don't judge them for that. It's just an opportunity and it raises awareness for me of like, we need to have some of these conversations then. Because I can't fish for northern Indiana. I am going to burn out if I do. But if I can get other people to learn about it. And if they're like me and are like, wow, I'm captivated. I want to know more. And they dive in. Great. If they're like, I don't know more, but I know how to recognize it and send it to the folks that are diving in. Great. But it's like we need more awareness for diving in. And it sounds like, Kyrie, really what you've been able to do is help facilitate the growth of that as well as 
Kelly and Trisha, that group that you've built together, because now you guys can share resources, even if people don't have a ton of clients on their caseload, they can learn. And if they're willing to learn, this is an environment where they can collaborate, which is huge. It's so important. What do you think about it, Trisha? Because I realize I went in there with my diatribe. And so we'd love to hear your thoughts, too. I guess my thoughts kept going back to just that outreach piece. You know, a part of our group was like, I think on all the bigger pages in Montana, me, Kelly, and Kyrie just kind of asked, like, what do you want to know about OCD? Ask us anything. And we actually got a lot of feedback of what are we doing wrong? What are we missing? What does this look like? And that was really encouraging to see, like, there's actual questions out there rather than just blindly overlooking it. I think it's such an important point of really having that community. And so how do you build community when your landscape is so spread out, right? Yeah. I has definitely been like through that group and through Kelly and Kyrie and just there's like these trusted providers that we also began to recognize like, okay, I feel comfortable referring to this provider or gotten on the good side, so to speak, of some psychiatrists and pediatricians because since I started opening my caseload to kids, Right now, it's like I am getting those calls from parents, right, who are pretty desperate, who are like, I want to get my kid in. And that does tug at my heartstrings. And sometimes I do cross my own boundaries and open up a slot or put them on a wait list, which I don't like to do. But yeah. Yeah. Do you guys ever hand out no CDs? And I mean, there are a couple of things that I will do. And no CD takes a lot of different insurances, too. But I find a lot of what's interesting is a lot of people will be like, well, I really want an in-person provider. And then they do telehealth with me. <laughs> but they like to know they could come, right? They could come into my office if they ever did. Sometimes they're hours, hours away. I'm like, please do not torture yourself with all that you're dealing with to try and commute six hours between the trip here and back just to see me. Let's do telehealth. But do you guys provide that to your wait list? Or what do you do in terms of referring any kind of resources on how they can learn while they're waiting. I would say like I don't refer to no saying not because of anything. I just don't know much about them. So this hasn't been on my radar. But for me, I like to offer resources in terms of like what podcasts to listen to. Here's a book to check out. Go see doctor like talk about medication management, someone who's knowledgeable in OCD that would appropriately treat it. I'm putting a pin right there because I'm going to come back to that. What are you going to say? But yes, trying to find the doctors that know, though. We'll come back to that. But Kyrie, what were you going to say to you? I was going to say similar to Trisha. I will sometimes offer resources, books to read, blogs, podcasts to get people working on something, particularly if it sounds like they're pretty hungry to get started. Yeah. But I'll also do a little bit of triage. And if they're dealing with other mental health concerns, which they frequently are, like if they're having severe depression or, you know, some other life problem, I will sometimes refer them to a generalist to get started because I think particularly if there's depression going on, it really is a benefit to do some of that work yeah. first and, and maybe wait to see the OCD specialist. But you can oftentimes get started on other kinds of treatment and it at least improve your mental health status while you're waiting. There's, there's not always a need to wait for a specialist if there's other things to work on. Great point. So if in the process, if you're looking at all the things that are bringing a person in, if there are some things that we can help resolve, link people to the right person to help resolve some of the other areas that are adding to the distress and the noise, that can sometimes be a, a very helpful thing to do while waiting. And also looking into books and resources. I find I can usually tell because I get 
other referrals too for non-OCD clients, but I get a lot of referrals for OCD clients and I feel a responsibility to take the OCD clients because not everybody can find somebody that can, well, I mean, that's the whole point of our chat, right? But at the same time, yeah, it can be really, really important to be able to provide, here's what we can do in the meantime. You're also dealing with some marital distress or you're dealing with maybe some ADHD that is just making planning and getting through your school day or work day difficult. Yeah, we could work on some strategies that would help that with this professional or this professional. And then we're going to wait to deal with the OCD here. And it can be really helpful, especially if you have a good working relationship with that colleague and you can say, by the way, these kind of things that can emerge out, because it's hard to separate them too. There's such an overlap. They're going to be dealing with some of the OCD, whether they know it or not. So helping, just being able to have that communication if you have a person on the wait list that is willing to have that release. But it's also asking a lot from the professionals to then have a release with a non-yet client to kind of help advocate for their needs. And it gets very tricky and complicated, right? Absolutely. I think it can be really challenging to collaborate with other professionals and just sort of make sure that the client is getting their needs met all around. I, similarly to Kyrie and Trisha, if a client reaches out, I have a wait list, but they have pretty high insight into what's going on. They seem to know that it's OCD and they've maybe already like done some research. I feel pretty comfortable sharing resources with them. Hey, do you want to dive into this uh, course of Kim Quinlan's? Here's a podcast that will kind of give you some information or psychoeducation. Here's a book recommendation. Because often that psychoeducation, which we usually spend a few sessions on anyway. Yeah just can put context to what they're experiencing, can really validate what they're going through, and also just really start to light that hope that things can change. And that might be enough to sort of sustain them while they're waiting to get into treatment. Yeah, yeah, really great points. Yeah, and I think that's a huge piece, that insight, or at least the flexibility to be able to hear that and take it in and gain that insight quickly. Sometimes that's enough really to get somebody on their course, right? They go, oh, I didn't understand that. And that is just an intrusive thought. And I don't have to do this reaction. And then it doesn't come up for them again. Something that was feeling really, really distressing for weeks, months, years. But often it takes some more time than that. And so just even giving folks resources can be huge. I mean, that's one of the big reasons why I do this podcast is just to talk about resources. It's not therapy. It's not treatment, but it's important to get the resources out there. Now, we've been talking about this from our therapist side of some of the concerns and and difficulties that we experience. And one of the things we were talking about before recording, and I see, Kyrie, one of the points you were bringing up, too, of the difficulties from the client's perspective of trying to find a provider. Often, someone isn't going to know what they're dealing with is OCD. I have a client, if you listen, Clay, you know who you are. They tune in every now and then, but came in with some relationship difficulties. And through the end of that first assessment session, I said, well, it sounds like we're dealing with some relationship OCD here. I would like to assess this further. And she was like, what? No. Like, that's what? You think this is OCD? And I'm like, I do. Yeah, I, I do. And so we had a follow-up session. I still see this client, but 
the client came back, had done a bunch of research and was like, yes, this is relevant. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. And so, so often clients don't even know how to advocate for this. Sometimes they do. They maybe got a, a diagnosis from somebody else or are doing enough research on their own. I get a lot of the Puro researchers that are like, hey, I think I have Puro. <laughs> it's like, okay. And so in terms of from the client perspective, we've talked about it from how hard it can be from the practitioner side. What are some of the difficulties that you've heard and have been experienced by clients really trying to find these resources? I think it's one problem that we face probably in any area, not just rural areas, is people don't know what they don't know. OCD right. is so heavily stereotyped that you might not be the person who's washing their hands a lot or focused on having to have everything on your desk at right angles. And just for friends and family listening of my own that maybe haven't been exposed to OCD, I know your listeners to your podcast, Nicole, have been well-educated on what OCD is. But that's not what the three of us are talking about right? as far as the clients we treat. We're not talking about somebody that likes a neat and tidy desk or likes a tidy environment. We're talking about people with severe distressing thoughts, some of which time feel unspeakable. So people don't know that that's what OCD is. They just think they're a bad person. right? And you don't go to therapy because you think you're a bad person if you don't know what to call it. So probably in any area, there's a, a population of people that don't know what they're suffering with and therefore they're not going to present in any of our offices because we're, you know, we're saturated in the culture as well. If you haven't had specific training in OCD, you also might have a stereotyped view of what that is. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, one of the big things that I think about too is like if you're afraid that you're a bad person, often the person feels this hyper responsibility to protect others from you. Right. Like, because what if I could be this monster? Then the last thing I want to do is go tell people why I could be a monster and potentially do harm or hurt them and all the different things. And so you're absolutely right. It's not something that people easily <laughs> can share about. It takes a lot of courage to share about a lot of these very intrusive thoughts or obsessional doubts for a reason. They're not fun like I'm drinking out of a pineapple on the beach thoughts. They're like, what if I shot someone at the beach type of thoughts? Well, then I'm probably going to avoid beaches. I'm probably going to avoid guns. In fact, I'm going to avoid anything that maybe even people because I don't want to hurt somebody. I would never want to hurt somebody. And so that speaks to the ego dystonic nature, which you were talking about ego dystonic thoughts in your initial awareness and training and getting access into training about OCD. And just for any new fam or a reminder for our existing fam here, ego-dystonic thoughts are not thoughts that align with your values. They are distant, is, is a way I explain it sometimes to folks, from anything you would want to be or ever do. And so that's why having the thought is so disturbing. So if you are a devout Catholic that thinks of blasphemous thoughts and you may feel compelled to need to go to confession but also feel like this shame and horror and whatnot and that's an important part of your faith now we can start seeing how oh that's really ego dystonic to what your faith actually is that sounds like ocd getting in there and saying but what if what if you're really this bad monster doomed to go to hell or whatever else and so it's very very hard 
for people to go and reach out. And some bad things have happened. You know, people have reported, I've had this thought about hurting my child and CPS gets called. And you're like, this is not what the person wanted to do. But they reported it to the doctor and the doctor's a mandated reporter and they talked about harming their kid. And so it becomes this really tricky thing. I think also when we think about it culturally, because not everybody has the same privilege, whether people like to admit it or not, me going in and explaining an intrusive thought isn't going to always be heard the same way as a black man going in sharing that same intrusive thought, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we start to look at culturally what's going on for folks as well, and if we're in kind of the wild, wild west where there's not a lot of people around, you don't have a lot of people that can come and speak and vouch for you, and you feel isolated and alone, just like the practitioners can feel. The clients can feel isolated and alone too, and that's a real problem, especially when you're saying, like, not only within the OCD specialty, but mental health, period getting linkage. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on that too with the culture piece and, and uh, just really, you know, people finding other folks that have dealt with intrusive thoughts and being able to be like, I'm not alone in this. Oh my gosh, it's so hard to build those connections or to feel even free to say that because it's like, gosh, what are people going to think of me if I had that thought? I think, Nicole, you hit on something really important, which is fear of reporting. Mm-hmm. And when you're in an area that's very rural and there's maybe not a widespread understanding of OCD, particularly themes like harm OCD, pedophilia OCD, there's a real valid fear that you will be misunderstood, misinterpreted, and assigned a label as like potentially an abuser or whatever it may be. And that fear of reporting, I think, really is valid for these folks. And it's hard to say out loud that really, really scary thought. And it can be when someone does have the courage to say, hey, I have these thoughts that I might pick up a knife and stab someone and I'm so afraid that I'm not willing to go in my kitchen anymore. That may be interpreted as, oh, they really might do it so much so that they won't touch a knife. They are a threat to somebody else rather than being able to clock, oh, I see what's going on here. That's so beyond their values and it's so unaligned with their core self. It's so egodystonic. That part flies under the radar. The fear spikes even for the provider hearing it. Right. And they immediately shift into, oh, this is a threat and I need to do something about it and maybe I need to report. And one of the things that I feel strongly about is that if somebody is coming into my office with already some awareness that they may have OCD, I'm just going to normalize that as part of my informed consent and say, because you're here with a concern about OCD, I want to be really clear that intrusive thoughts are not reportable. And some of the following thoughts are really common in the context of OCD. And then I might just list like some really scary ones and say, I'm really well trained to discern between OCD and intent with a plan. So we need to just be able to talk openly about this. And I want to be sure that you know that OCD thoughts are not reportable. But I have that training to say that. And many providers, that would spike quite a fear to have somebody come and say, I'm afraid that I might harm my newborn baby. Right. Right. And then there's CPS, there's reporter. We're in Montana with a large Native American population. There's a lot of fear and mistrust toward reporting and involvement of CPS. And so, yes, that is a barrier to care. Do you also have a separate agency that will handle the indigenous groups reporting? Because there are some separate laws, I know, set up 
for indigenous groups, we would run into this in Southern California sometimes in terms of when their local law and infrastructure could be overridden for the safety of a client. But it was rare and you had to kind of go through different hoops of this client really saying, I'm consenting to this non-tribe member to help treat our family. And still there was tension. Understandably, there was tension between these two different systems of power. And so do you have when there is reporting, is it a separate kind of legal entity for indigenous groups or is it kind of all the same child protective services? I believe, and maybe Kyrie and Trisha, you can speak to this more, but I believe it depends on whether or not they live in the tribal community on the reservation or in the community of like Great Falls. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think this is just a really important topic that comes up because anywhere you go, really, around the country, you're going to have different cultural groups that are going to have different experiences of oppression and harm and abuse that has been intergenerational. And there's also going to be really an emergence of new formed groups of people that have been basically born into the American culture. And so we have family members that have maybe really traditional ties back to different cultural beliefs, different cultural forms of communication and how they handled conflict. And then we have kind of the newer crew of more westernized. You're seeing a, a merge and shift in terms of the ideology of like how we deal with conflict. Are we going to save face? Are we going to deal with it internally? Can we trust outside agencies? And so it's it's very complicated because it's an important thing for us to be able to, in any walk of life, no matter what group we're in, be able to build that trust, right? But building trust is really hard. And then if you add an intrusive thought of what if I'm dangerous? What if I'm a monster? What if I have this obsessional doubt where my vulnerable self theme, this is speaking to ICBT language, but what if I've been negligent and somehow could have prevented harm and I didn't do enough? If you already don't have trust within the community and then you have this fear of what if I'm culpable of this, what is going to happen to me if I come forward and say this? And it's imprisoning. The, the thoughts are imprisoning. The ideas, sometimes it's images, sometimes it's sounds, sometimes it's something clear and understandable, sometimes it's a feeling within the body that just feels so intrusive and so scary that people are afraid to say it. And so it's one of those struggles that I bring up this intersection a lot of of how do we build trust? How do we get research and treatment more reflective of all the populations struggling with OCD? Because it's everybody. It's everybody. But then also, yeah, I mean, sometimes when people have spoken out about these intrusive thoughts, bad things have happened. And so it's hard to rebuild that trust. These moments are, are seen as, see, we're not going to be treated fairly. You need to keep that shit to yourself. And yeah, you probably are the problem because we don't know why you're having this thought. We don't understand this is OCD. We think this is crazy. But if you go tell them that, like, you're going to be locked up too. Like, that is, that's part of the struggle that we're working with. I would add, Nicole, that in Montana and, and likely other rural 
areas, all of what you just said is also set against a backdrop of having a bit of a kind of a cowboy up culture in which people are stoic. They want to help themselves with their own problems. It's not necessarily always encouraged in the really rural areas of Montana that you would go get mental health treatment. We also have a large veteran population in Montana, which is wonderful. My husband is a veteran, so I really have a heart for that population. A lot of veterans are concerned or, or current members of the military have a concern that if they are to get mental health treatment, that can be a bit complicated. And I know the Army is really working on how to help their soldiers with mental health struggles in a way that isn't stigmatizing. But that is also a barrier in Montana. My husband's also military. It's a really unique environment. My husband just retired last year after 21 years of service in, in the Air Force. There is also this misconception that if a family member reaches out for support, then they are putting their loved ones at risk. That's a really great point. It's a whole family thing in terms of how the family absorbs the stress, the anxiety, the prayer, the, the hope, the strength in supporting their loved one that's participating in military service. It's a huge sacrifice across the board. But thank you to you and to your husbands and families for the service that your husbands are providing. And it speaks to the topic just even more broadly about cultural barriers and how we can increase access to resources and and speaking to that conversational piece. So in terms of when we're thinking about our small towns and clients facing some of these struggles and and maybe not even knowing what they're dealing with, any ideas in terms of just how to offer some hope to folks that are living in a remote area going, I don't have access to anybody that even knows anything about mental health, maybe, let alone OCD, like, Any ideas that we can give to the fam here in terms of looking for resources and feeling some hope? I think in like this post-pandemic world, like we have the opportunity to cast a wider net. So I definitely say like, hey, like reach out past even your next biggest town, right? Like cast that wider net, look in bigger cities if you need to, because virtual therapy is widely available. While maybe the person in your small town may be full, if you cast that wider net and just look outside, maybe there was the other options also available. That's something that I really appreciate post-pandemic, right? It's like being able to look elsewhere for more comprehensive care. Yeah. And I'm not just restricted to what's locally available. Right. To me. Yeah. Great point. Because like you're, you're licensed in Alaska and Montana. You're also licensed in South Carolina where you are currently. And you can see Obviously, your commute would be a bit long for the other two states, but you have the ability to see all around the state. And that is a huge advantage. And so that's a great point about casting the net. Any other thoughts? I would just piggyback off of what Trisha said. Well, I think when Montana, we were using telehealth before the pandemic, and maybe that's true for other rural areas, right? This wasn't like the pandemic emerged and we had to like problem solve with with teletherapy. Like that was already existing because we have so many farming communities and rural areas. It's not safe to have to travel in town on blizzarding days. So just echoing Trisha's thoughts, I would just say if you're willing to get online, you will find hope, you will find healing, and you will find a community. 
And something I really value about the OC professional community is its generosity. Mm -hmm. There are groups online, support groups, connection, lunch and learn. I mean, everything that's out there, right? So even if you're not connecting to a therapist online, you can connect to other folks who are having similar experiences. You can disrupt that isolation. Something that I see in the ICBT community, which is pretty phenomenal, is this the same materials that therapists are using are absolutely accessible to clients as well. And so it's really beautiful to just merge that in-person and online world and let these folks know if, if you're willing to get online, you will find hope, you will find healing, you will find resources, you will find a community. I've been surprised that clients that have reached out to me didn't know that they could search beyond the city they live in. Oh, yeah. So that's something that has come up a few times where I've said, hey, have you gone on Psychology Today or IOCDF? Here are some search terms I would recommend across the state of Montana. Search for somebody if you're willing to meet online and they had no idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really great point. So just even highlighting that those features can extend outside of your area. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Really important. Anything you would add to that, Kyrie? I think they covered it really well. I would just say in general, don't give up. If you're a potential client out there listening, don't give up. There are people in every state of the United States that are trained to treat OCD. And you might have to persevere through calling lots of therapists, getting on some wait lists, maybe calling and not getting a call back because that happens a lot. Keep trying though. OCD is treatable. There is relief. And even if you get told there's a wait list, get on it. Don't give up because there's a wait list because your time will come. I know for myself, like I said, I try to refer before putting on my wait list because I think that's the compassionate thing to do. But please don't give up. Get on a wait list if nothing else because your time will come and you'll be glad that you waited. Yeah, I mean, really great points. And I think the community online and social media influencers and whatnot, part of what they've also been able to create is a normalization of we can talk about these things or you're not alone. Because whether you tweet something out or not, or whether you like a post or not, you can be like, I've had that same thought. And seeing that somebody else had that same thought can feel really powerful. Now, not all social media influencers are creative equal. Not all of them have had support, but they are putting a voice out there. And something I do appreciate is it helps break down the stigma of at least we can have conversations, right? And so for all the negative the social media can get harped on for, I do think that that is a positive silver lining that comes out of that. Also, no CD, which I've brought up a couple of times for folks that don't know the company Treat My OCD, No CD. And I just had Patrick McGrath, who is the chief clinical officer on. He was on our premiere episode for season two, but they also have an app and you can join that app without doing therapy through no CD, and there is a very, very active community. They do a lot of live streams, but people posting message boards, chats going on. And so again, even if you're just reading the comments, maybe you want to be the fly on the wall. Being a fly on the wall in a space that normalizes and helps break down the stigma of what you're experiencing can be so powerful. Right. And it often will lead you to learning more. So Trisha was like, I was a flying wall in that training, but she didn't stop there. 
She was like, because I had that insight and because I was like, that's interesting. I want to learn more. And because she was able to pair up here with Kelly and you guys were in the same office suite, you guys were able to collaborate on this and be able to learn more. And so it just speaks to knowing that the community is out there, IOCDF and a number of other organizations are doing live streams on YouTube, roundtables, lunch and learns. Kimberly Quinlan, as you said, she runs the Anxiety Toolkit. But she has a great podcast, so many helpful resources. Jenna Overbaugh. There's just like there's a number of people, OCD stories. And so sometimes just even joining in and hearing some of those other perspectives and just being able, if you can walk away and the only thing you glean from it is I'm not alone, then that is huge. That is huge. It's when we feel completely alone, stuck, isolated, we must be the odd person out scared that is that is where the true true suffering really amplifies but knowing like hey there is hope and and for folks to be able to go from something that's been so imprisoning to understanding that they're not alone is sometimes everything really absolutely yeah definitely yeah well ladies this our time has flown by we dove right in and we went for it. It's been so fun to be on here to see Kyrie and Trisha in real time meet with you, Nicole. My parting thought is I just have so much gratitude toward fellow clinicians who are willing to train and learn and treat OCD. As a parent of somebody with OCD and as an OCD therapist, I just hold so much high regard for clinicians who are willing to do this work. It's, it's hard, but it's so necessary. And I'm grateful that I have a really cool, generous, values-based professional community to share this load with. Yeah, well said. I would say ditto to Kelly. And thank you so much, Nicole, for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, that's just, Kelly said it perfectly. And then ditto too. You know what? My my one thing that I thought of when you were saying that, Kelly, because my son has OCD as well, and I have a number of people in my family that have it, and my husband's side of the family, is, is uh, sometimes the challenge too is like you do a good job disseminating information and, and helping people become aware. But now what? Because their connection, especially people in your personal life, they're like, you can't be my therapist, but who do we go to? Right? Like right. there's no one here. <laughs> Weirdly, my teenager doesn't want me to be her therapist. It's weird. Isn't that? Awesome. So yeah, I'm, I'm just so grateful for this professional community, like really invested in caring about and providing evidence-based treatment for people with OCD. It's really beautiful to witness and to be a part of. Yeah, great points. And, and, and like the point was made earlier, just because they're not in our town. I mean, there are other people in Indiana, in my case, where we live. And it's like, yeah, I think often, too, we just know the skills and live the lifestyle enough that it also has a pretty big impact. <laughs> Um, whether whether our kids or our family members are aware of it or not, we're not trying to be their therapist, but it just ends up being you live that ERP life or you live that my son will often come excitedly to me and be like, hey, mom, I, I thought about this and it reminded me of my OCD and maybe we should look at the ICBT slides. Mm -hmm. The kids cool. slides that Broadwood did, and, which are amazing. He like nerds out on it. And I love that he can say it by name. But yeah, often it can, you can be like, 
yes, just the generosity of this field of you guys taking your time for us to be able to come together, have these important conversations. Yeah, it's it, I'm constantly, constantly so aware and grateful of just that generosity like you spoke to. So I say thank you to you ladies as well. And thank you for all the hard work you're doing in Montana. It sounds like you guys are ripe for an affiliate. I'm telling you, for Montana, <laughs> like you've got it, you've got it going on. But you guys are doing so much, and it's it's making a difference. So thank you for all you do, and thanks for coming and sharing with the fam. Thanks for having us, Nicole. Yeah, thanks for having yeah. us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. All righty. That was such a great conversation. Another big, big thank you to all my rural ladies. And wow, I just love being able to end on that message of hope. It's really just so empowering, isn't it, fam? And you know what strikes me is that all of these counselors, all of these women, they learned about OCD through an experience, through a relationship. For Kyrie, it was that young college student that never came back into her office. And you know what? I hear that story and I empathize. But at the same time, it really goes to show the seeds that we can plant in others, whether it's us as clinicians to our clients. In that case, for Kyrie, it was her client to her, whether it's a mother to a child, a parent or a spouse. It really can lead to the most beautiful and precious fruit. I mean, I'm going to guess that the vast majority of the OCD family community is here because your loved one, or perhaps even yourself, has OCD. And you know, we heard it from Kelly. She started really leaning in and wanting to know more. But upon learning more, was like, holy crap, this is what's going on for my kiddo. And there's nothing we wouldn't do for our family. And so we seek out resources and we learn what we can. And even you here listening to me, you have other ways you could spend your time, but you are choosing to lean in and to learn what you can, even if it's just the reminder that you're not alone. That is so powerful. And how beautiful and sacred are our roles for our loved ones, for those with lived experience, with our fam. And you know what I just, what I really loved about having this conversation beyond the clear fabulousness of Trisha, Kelly, and Kyrie was it just goes to show, even if you're in a small town or, hey, a capital city that's not a bustling metropolis, we were reminded, right? It doesn't mean you're forgotten. You're not alone. And it doesn't mean there isn't hope for you, for me, for us. And it does perhaps mean that we have to get a little creative time to time on how we find our tribe or how we connect with others. But if anything, I am blown away by what just one person can do, armed with research and knowledge when it comes to OCD. So for today's intrusive thought segment, which is the application segment of my show, I want to challenge you, fam. This week, I want you to plant a seed. Yeah, I want you to plant a seed. Maybe this means asking a question, like putting it out there. Hey, does anybody else ever get scary thoughts that make your mind spiral? Don't want to talk about what those thoughts are? It's okay. Sometimes just knowing that we're not the only one that thinks things that are hard helps. In fact, it opens people up to be a little more transparent about their struggles. And if you're worried, if you're worried about what could come from admitting or even putting something like that out there, then honor that. 
honor that the trust needs to be built, that transparency in how systems will react as needed to increase safety. That's real for you, fam. But also, still plan a seed. Lean into your partners, your spouse if you can. Talk with your therapist, with your faith leaders, your best friend. Lean into somebody. I mean, hairdressers, they hear a lot of things. Plan a seed. Or maybe even just do something like signing up for a newsletter like Kyrie Substack. For practitioners, maybe this means learning more about OCD or learning more about who you can link to and connect with that does treat OCD. Maybe even work with your local mental health community if you're a mental health provider and offer mental health support for people that are on the waiting list and maybe are dealing with OCD, but also maybe you're dealing with something else, eating disorder, substance use, depression, you name it. There's plenty of things that people could benefit from added support. And you being knowledgeable about OCD, even if you don't decide to treat it, you can even listen to the podcast and be like, you know what? It's so interesting. But no, I don't want to get into the whole treatment world. And I've already got my thing going on here. That's okay. We need people with those things going on. We need people with your interests and your specialty. But we also need allies we can collaborate with so that the fam can get support, even if they're still waiting for an OCD specialist. Not everyone has to treat OCD, and that's okay. But working with colleagues that have an awareness and how to collaborate with OCD providers, it's such a treasured and powerful resource. So plant a seed. For loved ones and chosen family, maybe that means sharing a post about OCD so that people can be more informed on what OCD really is. Heck, you can even share the podcast. Feel free, please. (laughs) Be my guest. You can check out the International OCD Foundation, which happens to be hosting a virtual conference this weekend if you happen to be hearing this hot off the press. But even if you aren't, there are so many wonderful resources online at iocdf.org, icbt.online, iocdf or icbt's YouTube channels. There's just so many rich resources available. And there are many amazing podcasts. I am lucky to be in a community of amazing colleagues putting out amazing content like the OCD Whisperer, your anxiety toolkit, the OCD stories, all the hard things, and Fearcast, just to name a few. And there are gobs of books, blogs, trainings, vlogs, that's a video blog for people that are older like me and going, what? What is that? And a lot of them are free and available for you. So I challenge you, fam, plant a seed this week. Just like that young college student impacted the trajectory of Kyrie's learning, just like being a fly on the wall and that exposure to this learning opened Trisha up to new understanding. And just like in her journey of learning more to become a better and more informed OCD provider, Kelly was able to go, holy cow, OCD has been masquerading around as anxiety in my kiddo's life. These seeds, whether we are aware of the impact or not, They're making a difference. And our futures, OCD or not, they're brighter because of them. So think about what you can do this week, fam, to plant your seed. And then come back. Because next week, there's more hope, more support, and more resources. Because while one person planting a seed can make such a difference, we're still better together, family. And together, I think we've got quite a harvest in store. So let's get to planting. 
Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the demo on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like planting seeds when we're in the weeds. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.